Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the United Kingdom, where at the time of this recording, it is a beautiful rainless autumn day at about 17 degrees celsius or 63 fahrenheit and i am co-host of the podcast with matt bates at quincy university in illinois and drew johnson at the king's college in oh i almost said london king's college london is a separate institution the king's college in new york city and i just like to stop and say briefly what a privilege it is to co-host with these guys i really uh, appreciate their friendship and collegiality so um and I'll take that for granted. It's a real gift. This is the first of a two-part series on biblical poetry, uh, which, as you'll find out in this episode, has been an area of significant research in the last uh, 40 years ago, if, if any of you have tracked that. Uh, about 27% of the Bible is poetry, so it's worth grappling with how to interpret, make sense of, and enjoy biblical poetry. And our guest today really enjoys biblical poetry and it shows and as a friendly reminder we will not stand in your way if you would like to go over to itunes and give us a review uh, it will help others find out about on script okay here we go i want to welcome jay blake cooey to on script blake is associate professor in religion at gustavus adolphus college in minnesota He's the author of Reading the Poetry of First Isaiah, the Most Perfect Model of the Prophetic Poetry, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. And Blake has also written a number of scholarly articles on this subject and others. Blake, welcome to OnScript. Thanks, Matt. Blake, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your background and and some of the things that drew you into the study of biblical poetry I've loved poetry for, gosh, I, I can't remember when or how I first got turned on to poetry, but I mean, since I was a kid, I remember really enjoying poetry, loving English classes in high school. And so when I went to college, I was a double major in English and religion. So there was always some cross-fertilization going on there. In fact, I wrote my senior undergrad thesis for my religion major on the doctrine of atonement in Paradise Lost. So, yeah, so always thinking about theology or, or theology and poetry and, and how they can, can intersect. Uh, and then I, I went to Princeton Seminary for my MDiv, and my second year, I the same semester, I took, and by that point, I knew I wanted to pursue Ph.D. studies in Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So I was taking classes to, to get ready for that, and so I uh, the same semester, I took a Hebrew poetry class with Chip Dobbs Alsop, who ended up becoming my dissertation advisor. And I took Exegesis of First Isaiah with J.J.M. Roberts. And so that semester, Isaiah and poetry were interacting in my head and in my thinking constantly. And Chip's class in particular, he he's always approached biblical poetry as one poet, one body of poetry among many across world literatures. And it should be read in conversation with all other kinds of poetry and not as this special thing. 
In fact, one of the things he had us do in the class was bring a favorite poem from any language, any period, and, and to, to share every day. And so we took turns doing that. So the way he taught Hebrew poetry plugged into my love of poetry in general. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, so who are some of your... Um, it, that's interesting because actually one of my one of my questions for you was, do you have a practice of reading poetry in general? Um, so, so who are some of the poets that are your kind of go-to poets that you just love uh, to read apart from biblical poetry? Uh, it, it varies greatly. I just finished uh, reading rereading Rilke's Book of Hours, which is, is a, a different kind of devotional, theologically oriented poetry. Really beautiful. Um, I've been uh, been recently reading uh, Kathleen Jamie, a Scottish poet. Uh, I heard give a, a talk when I was in Princeton a few years back and bought one of her books and put it off the shelf. So I, I try to read widely modern, contemporary, as well as some of the classics. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. And, and so what what do you think that lent you then in terms of approaching biblical poetry that, that gave you a, a sort of angle on understanding it? I think it gives you a sense of, of what's possible in poetry and the broader a sense of the possibilities of poetry that you have, uh, the more you can pick up on in the text that you might not have been looking for otherwise. Mm-hmm. So so the, the subtitle of your book is The Most Perfect Model of the Prophetic Poetry. And of course, this is talking about First Isaiah. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what you meant in that that fairly uh, bold claim of a, of, a, of a subtitle. Well, it's not my word, so I don't have to fully own the bold claim. Uh, the, the words actually come from uh, uh, Robert Louth uh, in the mid-1700s. A professor at Oxford gave a series of, of lectures uh, that are, are known in English. He gave them in Latin, but they, in the English translation, they're known as lectures on the, the sacred poetry of the, the Hebrews. And he's generally credited with really beginning the modern study of biblical poetry as poetry. And so he's coming to it uh, trained in reading classical poetry, but, but he's also recognizing that it's its own culturally specific body of poetry that won't necessarily look like classical poetry in every respect. And he's trying to, to figure out what's going on there. And He's best known for nowadays, and probably for a long time, he's been best known for identifying parallelism as one of the more recognizable features of poetry. But really, I think his most enduring legacy is making a strong case that the prophetic books, like Isaiah, are actually poetic. And and so it's in that process of describing the poetic style and making the argument that the prophetic books are, in fact, poetry, or at least contain poetry, uh, that he makes this claim about Isaiah as the most perfect model of the prophetic poetry, uh, which he mean, by which he means both in the elevated content, the elevated subject matter uh, that he sees in Isaiah, as well as in the actual poetic style and the mm-hmm. use of, of language. And was he talking about, I guess that at that time, well, was he talking specifically about First Isaiah? Uh, and just so f- for our listeners who um, who may not be familiar with that, that's Isaiah one to thirty nine. Was 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 Louth referring specifically to that, or just Isaiah in general? Um. So he's he's 
treating the book of Isaiah as a whole, and he doesn't, um, I can't remember exactly um, where he is vis-a-vis um, some of the earliest identifications of, of different different divisions within Isaiah. He's treating the book as a whole, but he, he does at one point say that it's the second half of the book. So what we would think of as second and third Isaiah, but probably second in particular, uh, that, that, we're, that he really thinks reaches some sublime level that is, is unmatched in, in other biblical poets. And, and that's, that's long, I mean, I, I think that's been the consensus among readers of Isaiah ever since. Everyone's drawn to, to second Isaiah, this soaring, powerful, hopeful poetry, and, and, and rightly so. And the part of, part of what I'm arguing in, in my book is that first Isaiah is different, but I think mm. equally sophisticated in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I've heard that quite a bit as well, that Isaiah—it's it, interesting how much Isaiah 40 to 55 gets credited with. Um, so that the heights of biblical poetry, the heights of biblical monotheism, the most profound vision of the inclusion of the nations, you know, everything kind of gets right, right. attributed right. to that. And it's and I like how you push back against that to say, hey, first Isaiah speaks with a different language, or not different Hebrew language, but with a different kind of poetry, but it's equally uh, beautiful. That's good. Um, so biblical Hebrew or biblical poetry is is pretty tough going. And um, I'm wondering if you could explain, I mean, even for people who are reading it in translation, in English uh, translation, it, it, it can be very difficult. Um, so maybe you could just talk about some of the reasons why uh people find it difficult that you think um, and some of the inherent reasons that it's, it's difficult and also in Hebrew. Sure. So in like, reading it in translation, I think for contemporary readers, it, it presumes different aesthetic values. Uh, so uh, one, one thing that comes to mind immediately is repetition. You know, we tend to think you know, it's contemporary readers and in contemporary literature that repetition is a sign of laziness or bad writing. But but uh, the biblical poetry highly values repetition and uses it in in ways that are, are fairly rote, but also in ways that, that are fairly creative. The slight repetition with slight variation that can then be really really communicate a lot. Um, I mean, another place you see just the different aesthetic values is, is imagery that, that strikes us as odd. I, mean, I think the, probably the classic case, right, are the metaphors in, in Song of Songs. You know, you, you let you let students read it, and then they're just they're grossed out. Like, you know, that that's not a you know, your hair is like a flock of goats. That's not a compliment at all. And uh, and you know, and and you see that you know certainly in, in, in the prophetic poets with uh, some really, really outlandish, uh, borderline disgusting metaphors at, at times. Uh, so, so I think that's one thing that confronts readers in, in translation. And in, in Hebrew itself, um, I think a big part of what makes it difficult to read is its, its concision. Line, lines of the biblical poetry are, the average poetic line is probably three or four words, uh, in Hebrew, and to get that kind of concision, there's a lot that is left unsaid, un, you know, 
un unnecessary grammatical connectors that might specify uh, the logical relationships between words more generally are left out. Word order is, is variable in, in Hebrew to some degree in, in all of the language, but certainly in, uh, in poetry, it, it's completely out the window. Um, a lot of rare language is used in biblical poetry as well. Uh, so words that typically don't show up in prose don't show up a lot. Uh, and so there can be difficulty figuring out what those mean. And just, the, I think, a general love for ambiguity and, and open-endedness that is, is true of most poetry and, and most, of, uh, most of the world's cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you have a, a particular English translation that you prefer um, uh, that you could recommend to listeners uh, for reading the poetry of Isaiah? Um, I mean, I, think, I actually think that Comparing translations, obviously, for, for people reading the Bible in English is, is just a good study technique. And I think, I think poetry is one, one way it can really pay off, seeing the, you know, the potentially wide variation. I suspect one would find wider variation among English translations in, in some of uh, the poetic texts compared to, to prose texts. So I would rec certainly recommend comparing translations. Uh, as far as specific translations, I think... Probably the one that, at least in Isaiah, I like the most consistently is uh, the NJPS, the New Jewish Publication Society, which is usually published under the title Tanakh. And they, you know, I, I, I think they're, certainly the translators there seem to be making an effort to capture something of the, the feel of the poetry. One place you see that is in Isaiah 5-7. It's a well-known wordplay where uh, the prophet is expressing God's disappointment over not finding a just society in Israel and Judah. And there's this, this wordplay with similar sounding words. God looked for mishpat, which means justice, but found mishpach, which means something like violence or bloodshed. Uh, and then God looked for for righteousness, tzedakah, but instead found sa'aka, which in, in biblical Hebrew is used for the cry of oppressed people, like the cry of the Israelite slaves in Exodus. And most English translations just translate the semantic content of the words. There's no attempt to capture the wordplay. And, and, you know, and I don't want to be too critical of that. It's, it's hard. Wordplay is one of the hardest things to, to translate. But, but the NJPS, I think, does a, a good job for the, the first one, justice and injustice, which gets at some of the idea, but it, it's not really that striking in English. But for the second one, uh, they, they do the wordplay in English, equity and iniquity. Oh, yeah. OK. It, even, you know, it, it, and it, it sacrifices a little bit of the semantic meaning. That's not quite what the words mean in Hebrew, but the fact that they sound alike in some in English, you know, signals the fact that they sound alike in Hebrew, and that's just as much a part of the meaning as the semantic content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's just that's part of the compromises of translations, and and why comparing translations uh, is so valuable. That's that's good. Uh, you've mentioned parallelism already, which uh, it might be good to define for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, but maybe I'm wondering if you could, before we get into First Isaiah, explain some of the other hallmarks of biblical Hebrew poetry. Yeah. So 
I think the, the most baseline distinguishing mark of, of biblical poetry and, and of poetry in general is that it, it's written in verse. It's written in lines. And so there are regular pauses that coincide more often than not in, in Hebrew poetry with the ends of, of clauses or the, the ends of, of thoughts. But but those pauses come at a fairly a fairly regular intervals, unlike you know, prose or unlike conversation, where you pause when you get to the end of the thought, but the thoughts are, are varying lengths, and so the pauses are unpredictable. Um, so it's, it's broken into lines. I think I mentioned already the lines are pretty short. Three to four words is, is probably about the, the average, uh, maybe two, maybe five or six at the most. Um, and then uh, could you, could you uh, just briefly define parallelism for those who might not be familiar with that? Sure. So parallelism is, it's actually probably the feature of biblical poetry that is most readily observable in translation. Um, but you have successive lines of, of poetry, you know, one line following another, that generally have the same syntactic shape. So, you know, the subject, the verb, the object uh, matching up with each other. Uh, syntactically. And, and in that matching frame, you often will get semantic content that is also uh, similar. And so in, in some ways, the, the, the second line sounds like a restatement of the, the first line. And it, 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 it's even, and this gets back to you know, the earlier point about different aesthetic values. It's easy to see that as, as just another kind of repetition, which, which on some level it is, but to see that as, as being rote and predictable and, and boring. Uh, but, but starting with the, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, you have a, a series of studies by James Kugel, Robert Alter, um, Adele Berlin, that show that there's really something a lot more dynamic going on there, that there's repetition, but there's also difference, uh, sometimes very subtle, and this is true both of the meanings of the words, but also the, the kinds of words, their syntactic position, whether they're singular or plural. And it's in the sort of intricate play between the repetition and the difference that parallelism actually is, is very meaningful and creates a kind of forward movement that brings moves you through the poem rather than just slowing it down, which seems to be... Which, which seems to be its effect, maybe on, on first glance. Yeah, and I think I think an approach to biblical poetry that is purely interested in extracting its meaning will want to boil those parallel lines down to maybe one concise statement of meaning and and grab that and run. <laughs> um, no, exactly. <clears throat> and in one place you actually see that not consistently, but in some of in, in some of the Septuagint translations, the early translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Um, and, and different books of the Bible were, were translated by, by different translators, and, and so there are different translation styles. But in some of the poetic books, you actually see the parallelism mostly eliminated in the Greek translation, the, the parallel lines being combined. Oh, interesting. Uh, in, that, in that sort of way. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we've talked about the the nature of poetry, but I wanted to just read uh, a couple of verses um, from your translation and have you talk about them a little bit. This is 
This is from Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, which are, are often kind of lifted up as an example of parallelism, so it's a helpful uh, case study. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children I have raised and reared, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the ass its master's trough. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So, um, how maybe if you could just talk about some of the the poetic features of those verses. I know for listeners it might be a little hard to imagine them, um, and and if anyone's near a uh, a device or a Bible, uh, it might be worth looking at. Um, but maybe you could just talk about some some of how these verses function and 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 some of the poetic features. Sure. So, and these are the the very opening verses of the Book of Isaiah. Yeah. So they, they, they grab your attention, I, I think, in, in a way in, in that a lot of current Isaiah interpreters think that Isaiah 1 was intentionally put together in, in its current place to be an, an introduction to the book. And, and that's often based on sort of thematic similarities, introduces important ideas that you find in the book of Isaiah. But I also think just as a really powerful poetic hook, those first lines, the very first lines of the book, really grab you. Uh, and the first two lines, hero heavens, give ear, O earth, um, you get really nice sound play, repetition of consonants in Hebrew, and that's the kind of thing that, that often doesn't, uh, as I mentioned earlier, come across in English. So in Hebrew, it, it's something like shim'u shamayim ha'azini aretz. And so that, that, that grabs your sound, or that, that the sound grabs your ear. Uh, and then you're introduced to this metaphor of the rebellious child. Uh, God is, is speaking in the first person, as, as is often the case in, in poetry. Um, children I have raised and reared, but they've rebelled against me. And, we know, and then verse... And, and we know, it, and we know uh, it doesn't always go well for rebellious children. <laughs> no, it, it, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know if this verse particularly has the, the Deuteronomy law about rebellious children in mind or not. But the the opening lines, "Hear, O heaven, give ear, O earth," actually echo uh, the beginning of of one of the poems that Moses speaks at the end of Deuteronomy. So there are some explicit connections with Deuteronomy there. Uh, but then verse three, I. I I, I talked just a minute ago about the work of Kugel and Berlin and Alter in the, the early 1980s on parallelism. And each of them has a fairly extended uh, two or three pages uh, discussion of verse three, the ox knows its owner and, and the ass it, its, master, its master's trough. And, and and when I was writing the book, that was one of the things I was or doing the research for the book. That was one of the things I was really struck by is how this verse, you know, these three different working independently scholars are all drawn to it as an example of really the the sophistication that uh, biblical poetry and, and parallelism can offer. So uh, at first glance, it, it seems to be very. You know, very similar, almost redundant. The ox knows its owner and the ass its master's trough. It's so similar that you can leave the verb out of the second line, uh, as I do in my translation, which which is, is true in Hebrew as well. 
and you just sort of fill it in in your mind. The ass also knows its, its master's trough. And that's a fairly common uh, technique in biblical poetry. Um, but it, it suggests already that there's a certain similarity of knowledge uh, you know, between the ox knowing its owner. Uh, and then Kugel, I think it is, argues that you know, the donkey is a dumber animal than the ox. Even the donkey at least knows where to go to get its food. Um, so, so there is, there is variation even in the, the similarity, uh, but then you get to the, the censure, the next line, Israel does not know. Um, and, uh, and it's that same verb, yada in Hebrew, uh, that's there in the first line that the reader has to, or hearer has to mentally supply it to make sense of the second line. And then it's there again in the, uh, in the, the next line. And so you set up this explicit contrast. What's interesting, though, is the poet doesn't tell you what it is that Israel doesn't know. Um, presumably, you know, based on, on, on the, the setup with the earlier lines, the ox knows its master. Israel does not know its master, Yahweh. It doesn't recognize its, its dependence upon its, its covenantal relationship with God. But that's left unsaid. The, the reader hearer has to figure it out. Uh, the Septuagint of Isaiah actually in the Greek adds the word, the Greek word me in there. Israel does not know me. Uh, and then my people, which is an even more intimate uh, way of referring to Israel than just the, the geopolitical term Israel. My people, we're back to this, the same familial language that we, we got in the, in the earlier verse with children, uh, don't understand. And uh, the, the verb translated understand is, is a reflexive verb, so it's maybe they don't understand themselves, they don't understand who they are. It could also, though, have an emphatic sense, they don't understand anything. <laughs> yeah. And that, and, that may, and that may be part of the the intended implication of leaving out an object. Mm. They don't, they don't know anything. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, that's, that's really helpful. And it, it shows how, how, um, like you said, there's real sophistication in the poetry, but also there's an openness to it that allows, like, even at, it, it's, it's interesting at the, the opening statement, you know, everything I, I, uh, advise students against in papers, like your leading statement to have that much ambiguity is, is, pretty fascinating it says something about the function of poetry um and also i like the idea that there's a, a kind of descent here from an ox to a if that's true a dumber donkey and then you've got the people so that's a that's a fairly uh strong critique that they they rank lower on the rung than the ox and donkey and elsewhere elsewhere in the bible knowledge and, and it's often the same at least the same root in hebrew um, yada or, or da'at Knowledge is explicitly one of the things that is pointed to in, in other biblical passages as something that distinguishes humans from animals. Humans have da'at, or humans can yada, and, and animals can't. And so the, the, the poem here is reversing that sort of common cultural understanding. Uh, so, Blake, one of the questions I had was uh, around the idea of imagery and and uh, the the nature of how poetry works is, uh, do you have any examples of, of some of your favorite 
puns or word plays or images from uh, from the book of Isaiah? So one of my favorites, we mentioned already the very serious one at the end of Isaiah 5, 7, uh, with Mishpat and Mishpach, judgment and bloodshed. Uh, but another one that is just fun, in part because it's about alcohol, is in Isaiah 16, 8, which is, is part of a very, very serious poem uh, lamenting the destruction of, of Moab, this, this neighboring country uh, to across the Jordan River to, to the east of, of Judah. And, and there's a lot of debate about whether Isaiah 16 is genuinely lamenting the destruction of Moab since Moabites and Israelites and Judahites were enemies or, or whether it's this ironic, sarcastic lament. But at one point, the, the poet is weeping over the lost vineyards of Moab. Uh, and there's a, a couplet, a, a pair of lines uh, that say, the way I translate them is, rulers of nations, its choice vines hammered. I'm speaking about Moab, referring to the Moabites. And th there are a couple of puns actually going on. And the first is the, the word hammered, which in, in that text and in, in other biblical texts, you know, seems to be a word play, but similar to contemporary English, where hammered or smashed can be a, a euphemism for, for drunkenness. Um, so already, um, you know, there, there's that pun. Uh, but then because the syntax, is the syntax is ambiguous, it's not clear if rulers of nation are the subject and vines are the object or vice versa. Are we saying that rulers of nations hammered its choice vines, meaning an invading army destroyed the vineyards and in that kind of environmental devastation uh, environmental warfare was, was sadly a, a, a common reality in the ancient world. So rulers of nations hammered its choice vines. Or is the poet saying that the wine from these exquisite Moabite vineyards made rulers of nations drunk when they imported it and drank it? Uh, its choice vines hammered rulers of nations. So it's a pretty sophisticated, fun pun using the, the multi- multiple meanings of the word, the Hebrew word, halam, hammer, and then the ambiguity of what's the object and what's the subject in the sentence. Yeah, yeah, so they got hammered and they hammered the vines uh, both both together. Yeah, that's good. Um, you mentioned environmental uh, destruction, and, and that makes me think of another point that uh, you talk about in the book. Uh, in your chapter on imagery metaphor, so this is like pages 154 and following, uh, you, you touched on that 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 a topic that's really uh, important and interesting to me, and that's the relationship between uh, the suffering of the land and the suffering of the people. And and I've done some some thinking about this in the Cain and Abel episode, where you have uh, a Abel, uh, sorry, Cain killing his brother, and then the ground swallows his blood, and the ground cries out, but also the ground, in response to Cain, fails to yield its produce. Uh, toward him and then causes him to become a wanderer so that the, the ground gets involved in what seems like a human-to-human -human dispute. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on, oh, I also thought of the imagery in Isaiah 24 where, where it says that the, the earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the heavens languish with the earth. 
The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statues, and broken the everlasting covenant. So you have this. So what do you think accounts for this link between human suffering and land suffering in a world that didn't have a a scientific idea of pollution, at least as we construe it? I could imagine, and this is obviously speculative, but, but I could imagine because we're dealing with a subsistence agrarian economy, or at least a near subsistence agrarian economy, there is just an inherent sense of relatedness between humans and the land. Humans depend on the land for survival. The land responds to, to human activity in agriculture. A, a sense of closeness and connectedness that is, is mostly lost in industrialized societies. I mean, the whole farm-to-table movement uh, that, that's popular in, in some circles is an attempt to recapture that. You know, you, you, you didn't need that in, in ancient Israel or Judah. Everything was farm-to-table, um, and, and, and you'd starve to death if, if, if anything went wrong. So I think there's just a sense of, of intimacy and connection there so that it, it seems perfectly natural to think that human actions affect the land, just like the well-being of the land affects human survival. And, and in, a, in a sense, this, this sort of strict differentiation between human and nature as these completely separate and often opposed entities is, is probably not the, the attitude you're seeing there. Another place you see it in Isaiah is in that, that opening poem that starts off, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. The, the same Hebrew word, Eretz, means earth or land. And later in the poem, uh, there's a, a reference that invading enemy armies, maybe the, the Assyrians and in 701 BCE, have devoured the land, the Eretz, the, the same word. And in the context of the poem, that invasion is a divinely, divinely orchestrated response to Judah's rebelliousness and that's communicated with the, the child metaphor and the ox metaphor. So the sense that their actions have affected the land and the land is called on at the very beginning of the poem, addressed directly in a poetic apostrophe as a witness because the land is a, a, of a suffering party, a party that is implicated in Judah's punishment. And I think, too, there's a sense of, for Israel, that their experience of God was also mediated by the land. So you have, you have the God-human-land relationship very tightly woven in Israel's thinking. Uh, going back to the Cain example, he says um, he's, he's driven from the face of the ground and from God's presence, which is, you know, is, is, uh, is, is related to the word for face. Um, and so he's driven from God's face and from the face of the ground, which might not have been all that separated in their thinking. Not that they thought God was the ground, but that that's how they experienced the goodness of God's blessings. So, right. and, and whatever you do, you do it on the land. And so the land is an unavoidable party to what you do, which I think you see it there with the land receiving the blood of, of Cain. And you see it in, in, in Leviticus at one point, I forget the exact reference, but the threat that if 
Israel does all of these forbidden things that, that God has prohibited, the land will vomit them out, which is this really gross but, but delightful metaphor in, in some ways. But that, you know, by doing these awful criminal things that, yes, you're doing them to other humans, but by virtue of the fact that you're doing them on the land, you're doing them to the land as well. Um, what, what are the, the questions I, I've always had and, and I, I don't have a good answer for is how uh, this, this is a kind of more macro question. So just kind of panning out for a moment to the whole book of Isaiah um, is, is how a book like this was supposed to function, how it was meant to be read and used because you've got this, by contrast to the the Psalter, which, you know, I, I feel like I could imagine how the Psalter was used as the songbook or worship book of the community. Don't know for sure, but, you know, that's something along those lines. Um, but what what is what do you think a 66 book chap, uh, chapter book like Isaiah, how it was meant to function? I don't have a good answer, so I'm, I'm actually disappointed that you don't have an answer either. I was hoping you might be able to explain that to me. It's right. It's and in recent Isaiah scholarship, over against the older trend in the, the 19th and in much of the 20th centuries of reading it as these three separate parts, first, second, and third Isaiah that that were sort of added mechanically to each other and don't really interact with each other. The trend over the last now 30 plus years has been to try to make sense of Isaiah as a whole. And, 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 and in some ways, my, my book pushes back against that trend a little bit, or at least, you know, wants to suggest that if we move too quickly to the book as a whole without trying to appreciate each of the individual poems and uh, in their own right, on their own terms, we might be losing something. But there has been this uh, appropriate attempt to understand the, the book of Isaiah as a whole. Yeah, but it, it's it's not clear to me how it would have, you know, any obvious ways that it would have functioned in antiquity. I mean, certainly in, in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4, I think it is, we see Jesus in the synagogue, and he's given the scroll, and he, he turns it to uh, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61 and reads from it. Uh, and that and that may well indicate something, some early version of, of a calendar of, of synagogue readings um, throughout the year that included the prophets, uh, like, like you have even now. Um, so that's that's one just sort of hint that that you do have regular readings in in worship from from the book. But it's interesting, and it's actually goes directly to one particular part of the book, um, without uh, without any obvious reason for for going there, which which is part of why you might think it's an assigned assigned passage for that day. And then among the Dead Sea Scrolls, you get commentaries on prophetic books, um, like uh, the, I think probably the commentary, the, the Pesher on Habakkuk is, is probably the most complete one, but there are at least fragments of commentaries on Isaiah, which at least to me suggests more, for lack of a better word, private study of the book by a, a learned scribe who is then interpreting and, and writing on it. And in both of those cases, I mean, in, in Luke 4, Jesus says this, this passage, this scripture is fulfilled today in, in your hearing. 
um, the, 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 the Pesher, the, the commentaries in Qumran, the Pesherim are trying to make connections to then current events. So there's definitely a sense that these texts are speaking to what for the, the reader or hearer are contemporary realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so, so you have that kind of making making contemporary of an older prophetic text, uh, kind of rolling yeah. that prophetic function forward right. into their own day. Exactly. And, and so I think a book like Isaiah, at a minimum, functioned as just a collection or an anthology of, of these kinds of texts that could be consulted, that could be read on a regular cycle. What I'm not, what I'm not entirely convinced by is that anyone actually sat down and read it from beginning to end all of that often. And that in contemporary, you know, contemporary Isaiah scholarship, when people talk about reading the book as a whole, that's usually the model they have, starting at the beginning, reading it through, at the, through it all the way to the end. And there are some indications that it's shaped to be a meaningful whole in that way, but I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure that there's actually evidence that people actually did that all that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's the hardest thing is is we we lack evidence of use until you know, um, much, much later. And so I, I do find it difficult to imagine uh, someone sitting down and reading and, and, and keeping together the kinds of thematic links between chapter one and 66 that some people talk about, and yet they are there. So some, some editor, some scribe saw, framed it that way, but yet in terms of its use or, or, or intended use, I don't know how well that would have functioned. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the reading from beginning to end is a sort of modern bias. It's how we read books. It's how we read novels and and certainly a narrative book like Genesis, where there's a sustained plot that moves you forward. Probably even that would have been read from beginning to end uh, in antiquity. But as as a collection of poems, I, I don't think a linear reading is the only way one can or should read it. Yeah. Well, that's just the tyranny of narrative scholars, you know, exerting itself again <laughs> into <laughs> right. the world of poetry. Um, no, but I, I, I wonder, too, just thinking out loud here, if, if that you, your point about that, that kind of reuse of prophecy isn't maybe the closest model for what, how it was used because we see it within the book itself. So certain oracles, for instance, that were directed against the north, they're reapplied to the south. So this idea that a a prophecy once spoken or a prophecy once written that had a certain relevance in its own day could be then lifted up again and applied to a new circumstance and that happens within the book and then that's just caught of, you know, it, it's uh, cemented in the book's process and then that just rolls on uh in time. Um yeah. That's a it's a open question, I guess. Um uh, I have a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of things I wanted to talk to you about. But um, you, you talk in your book about imagery and metaphor in poetry, um, which I think is obviously a major feature of poetry. Um, and we, we had a, a podcast episode with Erin Heim where she she uh, hopefully talked us out of the view that um, that metaphor is just rhetorical flourish, um, and and prophets were really masters of imagery and metaphor, and. I'm wondering what what that tells you. So, so thinking about 
the use of metaphor by prophets. Um, you know, here we have this this meta metaphor of the uh, the ox and the donkey, or the animal metaphors and things like that. Um, what what does the medium tell us about what prophets are trying to do and accomplish in their in their day? Well, I mean, I think metaphors make things, you know, good metaphors make things concrete. So with big theological ideas about God and then how God interacts with the world, there's, there's always the danger of abstraction. But when you have, you know, when you compare that to particularly in a, in a largely agrarian society, um, and, and in fact, in the, the chapter on imagery and metaphor in the book, I... I talk about two consistently recurring kinds of metaphors in Isaiah 1 through 39, uh, agricultural metaphors like, like pruning and, and plowing and harvesting, and then animal metaphors like, like the ox, excuse me, like the ox and the, the donkey in, in chapter one, I think which both speak to the, the real day-to-day life experiences of, of readers and hearers of the book in an agrarian society. Uh, so they, they make things concrete, uh, but they also engage the emotions. I and mean, I think we saw that in, in Isaiah, um, in, in those verses from Isaiah 1, where God is lamenting that God has raised these children who have now rebelled, and that even an ox is more grateful to its owner than God's own children are. And in, in, you know, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, the wordplay that I mentioned earlier, it isn't actually a metaphor, but it, it also gives an example of poetic language conveying that sense of disappointment. The fact that the words sound so much alike only underscores how different the realities are that they communicate and the, the disappointment there. So there's there's a kind of emotional engagement that, uh, that certainly prose narrative fiction can do in its own way, but that poetry uh, can do with, with a kind of unmediated directness, and 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 I, and and and, and, you, and and I think evoking the imagination, even though you're making things more concrete, even though you're putting a, a frame on what would be an, an abstract thought. You know, metaphors are good. Metaphors are often open-ended and encourage the imagination. So if there's one point of contact, we know that the relationship between God and Israel is like the relationship between, or in, in the case of Isaiah 1, not like the relationship between an ox and its owner. In this way, well, hmm, I wonder what other ways these could be like or not alike. And so there are all kinds of connections that the audience is encouraged to pursue on their own, besides the ones that are hmm. explicitly or at least implicitly made in the poem itself. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And, and I think one of the things that, struck me as I was as I was thinking about that question was um, the fact that you have you had prophets who were there, there was a real sense of urgency to what they were saying to the people I mean you've got the Assyrians practically on the doorstep of Judah you know things are 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 really bad and they break into poetry at that moment. It seems like the time where you'd want the clearest kind of communication, but yet they opt for poetry. So what? Um, I'm not sure what my question in that is, but I just think it's a fascinating response in that moment. And and maybe 
I don't know if you can think of modern parallels to that. I mean, the, I mean, the one that comes to mind is just the 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 importance of protest songs in uh, you know at, at these these huge moments of American history, the civil rights movement in the in the '60s, and, and certainly even now in at, at this current point in American history, where there's widespread cultural um, unease. And it's often musicians, singers of various sorts who are able to express that in a way that, that brings brings comfort and hope and, and also clarity about the situation to the, the people who listen. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, that giving someone a metaphor for construing their situation can can change everything. I mean, I, I liked how you talked about how the the imagery of pruning Gave, gave Israel a way of both, it gave the prophet a way of expressing the severity of the judgment that was coming. You know, you're being pruned. That's pretty harsh. But yet, pruning is important for the plant. And so there's also a potential turn of hope in that image at the same time. So then if the people are suddenly thinking, okay, this is awful, but what if it's pruning? That that changes our way of cons- thinking about our, our current reality that we can do nothing about really um but yet maybe that's what's happening here maybe it's pruning so so i thought that was really helpful uh, i want to want to just uh change tempo here for a moment and wonder if you'd be up for a speed round we've done these periodically and uh, uh this is where i ask you a question and you have a maximum of i always change it but let's say uh 25 seconds to respond so that gives you an opportunity to really go in depth and uh <laughs> and we go through a few questions what do you think sure let's do it okay um all right first question what song best describes your approach to life song in general yeah yeah just a, yeah, it could be a popular song or anything um gosh well i've been listening to tom petty a lot last couple yeah. of weeks since his un- unfortunate uh, and untimely death. So uh, learning to fly, but I ain't got wings. Hey, that's is, a good uh, one. Is one that comes to mind. Okay. Um, what song do you think best captures our moment in history? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm drawing a blank here. It's, okay. Uh, All right. Maybe that's a song. Uh, we can keep moving all right you come back to if you want what's a a favorite film from your childhood favorite film from my childhood um my uh my my father loved national lampoon's vacation which was probably inappropriate to be or certainly had some scenes in it that were inappropriate to be showing the kids as young as my sister and and me were but he showed it anyway and, and we we watched it all the time, and it, it, it actually became a kind of interpretive frame in our family for how we processed things that happened to us, especially on vacation. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's just like that time the Griswolds did this. <laughs> is that, so, so vacation, is that the first one, or, or are you talking about a specific yeah, one? Yeah, the, 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 like the very original one okay. where they're going, to, where they're going gonna... to Wally World. Okay, is that where like um, the dog gets tied to the bumper and all that? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And they and they tie the body of their dead aunt to the, uh, the top of the, the car. Okay. So your family uh, quotes a lot of lines from that movie, huh? 
Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, if you had to choose between bungee jumping, hang gliding, or skydiving, which would you choose? I am terrified of heights. So yeah. But you had to the, choose. The, all, all of them are unspeakably. Um, <laughs> probably, I mean, of the three, bungee jumping, I think, sounds like it gets over the – you get finished the quickest, so I would go with that one. Okay, that would be the last one on my list, but uh, okay. All right, when you're, not, over with. when you're not reading uh, nerdy biblical studies stuff, what are you likely to be reading? You've already mentioned poetry, but what else? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I – I, I've recently gotten back into reading novels. I'm at a point in my uh, career where I have a little more time and flexibility to, to give to something like that. Uh, because a novel is a commitment. You know, you, you're committing to following something through. So I've been, uh, I've, uh, I recently read uh, the trilogy of, of novels by Marilyn Robinson, um, Gilead, Home, and... Uh, I forget the uh, Lila, the, yeah. the third one. Okay, great. Uh, who is your favorite non-biblical poet? I, I think I've already touched on that, but let's hear it. I'd probably come back to T.S. Eliot more than, than anybody else. I mean, the, the, love, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is kind of a, a life poem for me. Why, why is that? Uh, the... This just really almost almost uncomfortable, per, uncomfortably realistic portrayal of someone who cracks under pressure, who uh, who comes to the moment where something big is supposed to happen in his life, and he doesn't quite know what it is, and he misses it and, and can never get it back. And so it, uh, it's 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 kind of a, a good motivator for me not to not to be J. Alfred Prufrock. Hmm. Hmm. All right. What might I find in your refrigerator? Uh, well, it's we're, I, I'm in Minnesota. Uh, it just in the last couple of weeks took a turn for the colder, and I think chili is one of the perfect cold weather dishes. So I cooked a big pot of chili this week and have re- re- leftovers in the refrigerator. Oh, that sounds good. Um, how would you explain a database in three sentences to? Um, your eight-year-old nephew. It's a way of collecting all kinds of information and in this big, complicated jumble that no one can then make any sense of whatsoever. <laughs> and you have to log in five times. Right. Uh, right. If, if you're trying to look up articles. Um, all right. Would you rather be chased by a wild stallion, a wild boar, or a wild dog? Uh, well, of the three, I've actually been chased by a wild dog before, so I, I know I can survive that. Yeah. So I'll probably, I'll probably stick with the familiar. <laughs> better, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, right? All right. Well, that's good. Um, well done on that. And um, oh, I forgot to ask you, what's the best book you've read in biblical studies in the last year? Best book I've read in biblical studies in the last year. Um, Gosh, trying to think of who I might offend or not, uh, or not offend by, by leaving out. Um, <laughs> let right. me come back to that one. Okay, that sounds good. Well, th- well that's the end of it for now. So if you want to um, jump back in with that later on, that's fine. Um, 
I wanted to just step back for a moment and and talk about the power of poetry. Um, I know we're coming to the end of our interview, but you hear a lot of discussions and communication, and uh, certainly in church circles, I think, about the importance of story and narrative and how we understand the world through deep narratives and those deep structural uh, structures. Um, and I and I tend to agree with that, uh, but I think the the Old Testament has a kind of a little bit of a critical pushback against that, while where it says yes, narrative, but also throws a ton of poetry at us. And I'd love to hear you reflect on some of the things that you think story and narrative can't do, and where we as humans or me, we as uh, the people of God need poetry. Um, to make to help us make sense of of the world and, and God and our experiences. So. so my way of thinking about that question actually was shaped by another class I took as an MDiv student uh, at Princeton Seminary, and I think it was my very first semester there. It was a, to fulfill a pastoral care requirement, and there was a, a class by Donald Capps. Uh, passed away uh, relatively recently, um, but on poetry and in pastoral care. So given my love for poetry, I was, was immediately attracted to that. And he explained that he was drawn to poetry as a resource for pastoral care because often pastoral encounters with people are episodic, um, one-offs even in, in, in some cases. And unlike a, a novel, and I just mentioned earlier, novels requiring a certain long-term commitment, a, a poem is, it's an episode, it's a moment. And, and most poems are relatively short. You can, you can read them in, in, in a few minutes, even if it takes a lot longer than that to, to really fully digest them. And so reading poetry, he argued, is a way to develop this kind of facility with with the episodic, with the moment, with the encounter. Uh, and, and that really helped clarify some ways that poetry works differently from long extended plot driven narratives. Poems are episodic. Uh, they, they're more open ended. They don't necessarily reach a neat, tidy resolution. Not that, that all narrative does either, but it, it certainly lends itself more to that and it, it doesn't impose the same kind of consistent, wide-ranging structure uh, that a story does. And, and in that way, I, I find poems to be more like life, at least certainly in the moment. Messy, unpredictable, ambiguous, unstructured. And maybe years down the road, looking back on my life to this point, I might see a kind of longer term plot that I didn't notice in the moment, you know, and, and narrative is, is a good tool for, for capturing that. But that's, that's, that doesn't always happen. And when it does, it, it's usually much later in, in retrospective, whereas in, in the moment, actually living life in the conflict and, and ambiguity and, and messiness of the world, you know, that poetry feels that way for me in a way that narrative doesn't. Mm, no, that's really good. I uh, I really like that idea that that poetry is episodic, just like life encounters are often episodic. Um, uh, but but also your point there at the end, which kind of ties into 
a thought on Isaiah, which is that you look back and you see perhaps an underlying unity of experience or plot to your life that's not present at the time or obvious at the time, just like this book was collected together with, you know, with some unifying structures in place, but yet it preserves the integrity of those episodic moments, the ups and downs of, 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 of judgment and hope and salvation and, and, and lament and, and all those things. And also, yeah, and over over a minimum of four centuries yeah, or more. Yeah, exactly. And, and I wonder if that's part of what Isaiah is doing is is trying to is is reflecting on that episodic reality of experience, and then trying to say, okay, how how does this hang together? Because it's been really messy, <laughs> right, right. And and even then, though, and, and this is, I think, part of the reason I. I resist what, what I find to be some overly narrativizing attempts to read the book of Isaiah. I think even, I, th- I think Isaiah does, the book of Isaiah, at the end of the day, this, the total is more than just the, the sum of the parts, but I think it's more about the recurring patterns. You start to notice the pattern in one poem, and then you see this pattern in another poem. Uh, which is different from the kind of linear, continuous development that you get in, in plot-driven narrative. So certainly there, there are larger connections across the book that, that do move beyond this, this episodic. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. They preserve the episodic and you still value it. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Well, um, Blake, one more question uh, that we often ask our, our guests on OnScript, and that that's a uh, uh, another stepping back question. What's one idea uh, or theory or school of thought in biblical studies that you think needs to die? I think generally an idea of biblical exceptionalism. Uh, the idea that whether one is making this argument theologically or, or out of theological motivations or, or as, a, as a historical judgment, that the Bible is fundamentally different from other kinds of literature, whether they be contemporary or modern. You see this in the study of biblical poetry and lots of attempts over the, the years to read the Bible, read the poetry of the Bible as if it's something unique that has little to nothing in common with other kinds of poetry. Uh, and in fact, that that's part of what made Louth's lectures so groundbreaking as he's reading it as poetry like other kinds of poetry. Uh, but you see it in other ways too. I mean, certainly there's uh, increasing pushback in the field against an even kind of anachronistic idea of canon at, at a very early stage that you know the works that would eventually become part of the Jewish and Christian canons were always thought to be special over against uh, compare, you know, the contemporary similar kinds of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that um, that anxiety comes out of a, a a sense that for this to function as sacred literature, it needs to be categorically distinct. Which you could argue, even on theological grounds, is a mistaken assumption. Um, and uh, yeah, I get your point too about the way that it might skew your ability to think about poetry or literature in the Bible. So that's good. 
Um, well, Blake, this has been a lot of fun, and I want to thank you so much for your, your time, your wisdom, and your insights uh, in this interview. So really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. Great. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.